Welcome again. I would say a very warm welcome, but clearly that's not appropriate. Um, but I'm Andrew Brand. I'm one of the leaders here at King's Church. And I would like to welcome you if you're visiting us this morning, um, just to say hello, really. But uh, to all of you, hello. Uh, we've just started a new series called The Journey, which looks at Jesus' final week, really, as we approach Easter. And just at the start of the week, Jesus enters Jerusalem in a sense, full of destiny, knowing that he's going to die within a matter of days. And so this is a very, very significant for us. So this will be about the fourth or fifth sermon I've preached uh, here at King's. I'm still learning uh, the different ways that we communicate, not only in, in preaching, but uh, in general, really. And I, one thing I have noticed is how useful it is to like sport. <laughs> it's really, really useful. Um, not just for preaching, but in general. At work, you get into the lift, right? You're riding the floors. Someone gets in. They're only going to ride a couple of floors, but they can turn to someone in the lift and go, do you see the match? And there's an instant communication. They're talking. There's a conversation. Me, I get in. I ask about the weather. <laughs> I might comment on the color of the walls in the lift. No one wants to talk about that. So I've decided to really like sport, all right? It's great. I love sport with all its kicking and jumping and running and stuff like that. <laughs> getting wet and cold, out of breath, or hot. Variety of temperatures, but always out of breath. <laughs> My son does actually like Arsenal, which is a football team, and so I know quite a lot about them. But um, again, not, not only sort of sport that you can chat about with people. I was at a conference the other week, right? The guy's talking. Suddenly he points at someone and says, you're wearing a scarf. The, the place erupts in laughter. It meant nothing to me whatsoever. I had to actually go up to the person afterwards and say, what was all that about? He explained it's a Wales scarf. There's a, a match that we're playing or something like that. don't know who they were playing, <laughs> Arsenal or someone. <laughs> but um, I'd, I can't see any Welsh scarves in here today, so I can't really do that. Um, you're wearing a scarf. <laughs> you support Arsenal. Brilliant. So... You see my difficulty. Sport is something I'm learning, but I don't think I'm there yet. Um, but I do really like Wales. There is a point to this rather long anecdote. I do really like Wales. And so I was quite touched when uh, I was chatting to the guy who was wearing the Welsh scarf. I had my honeymoon in Wales. My wife and I spent our honeymoon in Wales and had a fantastic time. There's loads to do and see. It's a kind of ancient, ancient country, really small, much smaller than you'd think. So to put that in context, the size of the United Kingdom, or Great Britain rather, is 90,000 square miles. The size of Wales, 8,000 square miles. Really, really small. Really small, lovely little country. And the interesting thing is, Israel also is about 8,000 square miles. So Israel and Wales are virtually the same size. Now that, to me, is an amazing fact. If you think about all the stuff that surrounds Israel, both today and historically, it's the size of Wales. It's this tiny little patch of land that God has somehow used throughout history ultimately becoming a man living in Israel, and as we're going to look at today, entering the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. I, I went to Jerusalem when I, was, when I was a lot younger. It's the most amazing city. Uh, it's, there's an area called the Old City, which is still walled, and that is pretty much what it was like when Jesus entered Jerusalem. It's, it's small, it's compact, it's dazzlingly white. All the buildings are made of this incredibly white stone. And because it's so hot and bright, the overall impression is just one of being dazzled. But there are also huge contrasts. The, 
the streets are so narrow, the little alleyways and passageways often don't receive much sunlight. So you've got this sort of darkness, this shade, and then the contrast with the intense light as you emerge into the sunshine. And when Jesus was alive, the city was dominated by two amazing buildings. On the one side of the city, there was the temple, the Jewish temple, which was huge, impressive building made of this white stone with lots of gold. So it was really dazzled in the sunlight. And then at the other side of the city, there was the, te- uh, the, the, the palace, which had been built by Herod and was now being used by the Romans, who, who, who ran Israel at the time of Jesus. So a lot of tension, the Jews living there under foreign domination by the Romans. And Jesus is coming to Jerusalem at a time of festivity. So even today in Israel, they still love to celebrate festivals. And the one that Jesus arrives in the middle of is called Passover. So Jerusalem would have been even busier than it normally is because of all the pilgrims coming into the city for the Passover festival. And Jesus is making the most important journey of his life. He knows that he's going to die in a few days' time, and he knows that this is his destiny. It's got to happen. So let's read the passage for today. It's it's Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. And when he had said these things, Jesus, that is, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So here we're seeing Jesus riding on a colt, which is a foal of a donkey. He's made sure that his disciples go and get the colt for him. He's sat on it. He's coming into the city. And largest numbers of people amongst his disciples amongst his disciples are excited to see him arriving people know now by reputation what he's like they they've seen either firsthand or through hearsay the miracles he's done they've heard his teaching and so a reasonable sized number of people now are sort of welcoming him into this city and i want to look at this journey this is the first phase of jesus journey towards the cross i want to look at this first phase of it in three headings a journey of humility a journey of destiny, and a journey of authority. So in terms of a journey of humility, it is interesting that over half that passage that I just read actually deals with Jesus making sure that his disciples get for him a colt to ride in on. Luke really wants to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. It's really important to Luke that we get that fact, and he spends a while explaining to us how it came about. So why was Jesus riding on a donkey, and why was it so important? 
Well, the reason he did it is to fulfill a prophecy in the Old Testament. And it looks to us as if Jesus specifically and intentionally went to get a donkey so that those who knew their Old Testament, the religious leaders, would know that he is signaling to them, I am your Messiah. And the prophecy is in a book of the Old Testament called Zechariah. And the prophecy says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus deliberately used this to provide a signal to those who knew their Old Testament that he was the promised Messiah. That's who he considered himself to be. So right at the beginning of his entry into Jerusalem, he's raising the stakes pretty high because to say, I'm the Messiah, was, was a big deal. And he's been so clever throughout his three-year public ministry. He never stands there and says, I'm the Messiah. He just doesn't do that. But he acts in a way that if you know your, your, your history, if you know your Old Testament prophecies, you're going to draw that very clear conclusion. And that's exactly what he's doing here today. And the aspect of riding in on a donkey, is it's just so humble, isn't it? To be a, a kind of conquering hero, you come in on a, a charger, a big horse, a steed, a chariot, but to choose a donkey is the very opposite of that. It's, it's sort of odd, in a way, to see someone riding on a donkey who is then proclaiming, I'm the Messiah. But Jesus' whole life was characterized by humility. It's something that was at the very core of his nature. And in fact, the very idea of Almighty God becoming a human being speaks of humility like nothing else can. You know, God, the creator of the universe, choosing to become one of us and dwelling as one of us is just the most incredible contrast between his power and might and our finite existence as human beings. And in one of the letters in the New Testament, we're told very explicitly, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, as I say, there's that huge contrast between God becoming a man, living as one of us in humility. And Jesus is very open about this. Elsewhere in the New Testament, you can read him talking about himself. At one point, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he, he's very open there, saying, look, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And because Jesus is this kind of great Messiah figure, it, he sort of makes it okay for us to be humble. You know, humility is what he's looking for in his followers. He's not looking for people that push themselves forward, which is so often the way of the world. Those who succeed or seem to succeed are very often those who put themselves into the limelight. Jesus is not looking for that sort of behavior. And in fact, the Bible is very clear that our thinking and behavior should be characterized by humility. And one of the roles of God's Holy Spirit is, is to make us more like Jesus. And I really want to emphasize at this point, nothing that I'm saying now is at all an exhortation to kind of try harder. Be more like Jesus. Because we can't. We really can't. It's God's Holy Spirit that, that transforms us. Nevertheless, Jesus is very clear that we should pursue hum humility. He said that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And there's a book in the Bible called Proverbs, which contains observations on the best way to live, if you like. 
And one of the Proverbs is actually the basis for our saying, uh, pride comes before a fall. So that's quite a common phrase, pride comes before a fall. But the full phrase in Proverbs is, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honour. We tend to focus on pride leading to destruction, but actually the full phrase is that humility comes before honour. So as we seek to humble ourselves, so we will, we will reap honour. And so there you can see that humility is contrasted with pride, as, as if they're opposites, which in many ways they are. God wants us to be humble, and in fact, without humility, it's impossible to, to approach God, because our pride will get in the way. We need to acknowledge our absolute reliance on him and ask him for his forgiveness. That's the start of our relationship with God. And this is difficult if we've got any traces of pride left in us. I can remember my own experience of having all my pride completely stripped away. In my early 20s, I'd moved into a, a flat on my own. I think I've mentioned this before. I was the first of my friends to be able to buy a flat. I'd got a job in a bank after uni. And I was so proud of this fact. I really thought it was the coolest thing that I could buy a flat. And I was the first of my friends to do that. But I could only afford a one-bedroom flat, which meant I was going to live on my own. And I was really not prepared for this at all. In fact, I hated it. I really was miserable. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, crying on my own in my flat. It was horrible. And I was so regretted the day I ever signed that mortgage form. And it just, at a stroke, stopped me from any kind of gloating or any sort of sense of satisfaction or pride. It was just cut away from me. And really, I would say for, for months, probably about a year, I was extremely lonely and unhappy. But God really used that experience in me to turn me to face him. And I gradually learned to find my security in him. And the pride that I'd had in, in being able to buy the flat was sort of my downfall, in a sense, but actually was the best thing that could have happened to me. Because God really taught me never again to do anything out of pride or anything to, to sort of impress people, which is something that we all, myself included, fall into very easily, doing things to impress other people. And it's a very futile motive for doing anything at all. And it doesn't lead to peace, and it doesn't lead to, to just sort of a sense of well-being. Having said that, humility has got quite a bad press in our culture, which tends to value people pushing themselves into the limelight and kind of striving and, and, and just, just being out there and bigging themselves up. And sometimes when we think about humility or being humble, the image that's conjured up in our mind is actually of someone who's not much use. But actually, humility is much more about not having anything to prove. That's really what it is to be humble, being content with who we are. And that's a lot easier when we're secure in God's love. Again, in the New Testament, we, we're given quite a good definition, definition of, uh, of humility. We're told, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, which is exactly what I'd been doing, really, with that flat. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So humility is not about focusing on our own inadequacies, but rather thinking of others as more significant than ourselves. And C.S. Lewis points out that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less, which is, I think is a very clever way of looking at it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. So you're not trying to say, oh, I'm rubbish, I'm terrible, no one likes me. It's not that at all. It's simply not thinking about yourself. It's focusing on other people. And that way, we pursue true humility. We think not less of ourselves, but we think of ourselves less. And I've been really challenged about this in preparing the sermon this morning. And we could do a sort of personal MOT to check for hidden areas of pride. 
But rather than laying something heavy on us all this morning, I thought it might be much much better to spend a few minutes now looking at the huge advantages of developing humility. There are huge advantages in pursuing humility. So of the six advantages, here they are, and, and I'll go through each one in a little more detail. We, we can diffuse arguments when we pursue humility. We can handle unfair treatment peacefully. We don't have to put on a false front or wear a mask in front of other people. We can take feedback without feeling crushed. We can ask for forgiveness more easily, and we can forgive others more easily. So the first of those, I said we can diffuse arguments. We don't need to stand up for ourselves. We don't need to get angry. We don't need to try and win every argument. As we pursue humility, we'll find that we need less to defend ourselves. We might still defend the truth. In fact, we need to defend the truth, but we won't be defending our own ego or our own reputation. And that's, that's very freeing. So I might be wrong. I'm losing this argument. So what? So what? It's just an ego thing. It's not something I need to get sort of worried about or angry about. Secondly, I said we can handle unfair treatment peacefully. And the world is full of un unfair episodes. Things often happen to us that we don't understand and we would rather didn't happen. But we don't feel the need as we pursue humility. We don't feel the need to somehow get back at the person that we feel is treating us unfairly. It avoids all bitterness. We're told, aren't we, earlier, we looked at the quote, we're told to consider others as better than ourselves. So if that's truly the case and we're pursuing that, when things are unfair for us, it's just something's unfair. It's not going to be something that causes us anger or bitterness. Thirdly, I said we, we no longer have to put on a false front or wear a mask when we're with other people. The better we know God, the less we have to prove. When we understand God, we don't feel the need to act as if we're kind of really important. And we can just be ourselves in front of other people. It's a, it's a horrible phrase, but you know what I mean when we talk about wearing a mask. It's being something that you're not when you're with other people. And that's very tiring and very stressful. And if it ever slips or something goes wrong, you get found out, that's, that's awkward, not nice. Fourthly, we can take feedback without feeling crushed. Feedback is great. If someone tells you something about yourself, you've got two choices. You, you take it on board or you refuse to, to listen. Now, they might be wrong or they might be right, but either way, if you're pursuing humility, it's not going to be something you get angry about or offended by. You're going to rationally consider what they've explained to you and either think, yeah, you're right, that is something I need to change about myself, thank you. Or you're going to think, I don't think that is true. I'll, you know, I'll ask others, but thank you very much for, for bringing it to my attention. It's not going to be something that you get het up about or, or feel kind of emotionally wounded. <coughs> And then the last couple, we can ask for forgiveness far more easily as we pursue humility. Even if we think we're only 1% wrong, we can easily apologise for what we did. Because we're not trying to prove something. We're not trying to be something that we're not. And then the final one, we can forgive others more easily. We know how much we've been forgiven, and so it's much easier to forgive others. And actually, if we're considering others better than ourselves... We know how easily we might have done what it is they've done that we need to forgive them for. Often we've even done it ourselves. And just bringing all that to light and being transparent and, and pursuing humility has these huge advantages to us. So I'd really encourage us all to be praying for more of Jesus' humility. It really is the, it really is the key to living in contentment and peace. And that is so liberating. As I said, this is something I'm finding very challenging. It was brilliant putting this together because I was really challenged by what I was reading in the Bible. I've seen these phrases so often. Jesus, I know Jesus is humble. And I know that we're, we're to pursue humility. 
but, but facing it and, and sort of laying it out in this way has been so helpful for me. And of course, the ultimate example of humility is Jesus, the Son of God, entering Jerusalem on a colt and then allowing himself to be crucified. So let's move on from thinking about the journey of humility and let's think about the journey of destiny that Jesus is embarking on. I said just now that he's coming into Jerusalem and allowing himself to be crucified. It's actually a lot more than that. It's not that he's allowing himself to be crucified. He knows that it's going to happen. He knows in advance that this is going to happen. We read elsewhere in the New Testament, as he's going up to Jerusalem, he takes some of his disciples aside and he says to them, look, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, that's his title for himself, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus knew that this was what was going to happen to him but he's chosen steadfastly to act in accordance with his destiny. Jesus is going to Jerusalem specifically to die for our sins. This was his purpose in coming to earth. And we're told in the New Testament in a letter written to someone called Timothy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's his purpose. That's why Jesus came. And this is why he's coming to Jerusalem for this week. And for us, this means that once we admit to Jesus that we are sinners and that we need him to save us, then he does. And that means that we then have a destiny, an eternal destiny leading to eternal life. And not only that, but each day, we know that God is for us. Every moment of the day, God is for us. There's a great quote in one of the letters in the New Testament, which says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I want to read that one again. It's so profound. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? And it's really worth dwelling on that. If God himself has become a man and has chosen to die for us, that's not the end of it as far as we're concerned. That's the beginning of it. If he's given us that himself in, its, in his entirety, of course he's going to give us everything else following on from that. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. So let's now think about the third angle, the journey of authority. And there's a real uh, sense, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, of his authority. It's not something that he wields in an overt sense a lot of the time. You see it from time to time. But most of the time, it comes across as a poise. He's just got this poise about him. Because, because he's humble, because of his humility, but because he knows his destiny, that he is God, come to earth as a man to die for us, this gives him this, in this, this incredible, quiet authority. And the way we see it in this particular passage is his ability to prepare in advance for this entry into Jerusalem. Amongst the intense busyness and pressure that he's under, he nevertheless is able to instruct his disciples to go and find this donkey and bring it back to him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm, if I'm going somewhere and there's a bit of pressure, I get really poor at preparing. Uh, the, the example that's, that's come to mind uh, in preparing this was actually my wedding day it was a journey I was looking forward to I was really looking forward to it so in that sense it's a terrible example but <laughs> but um, 
I can remember the morning of the day. I was still ironing my shirt. And my brother said, look, we really need to go. If I'm to drive you there, Andrew, because it was in a different town. I was getting married in another town, a way away. If I'm to drive you there, Andrew, we need to go now. You know, put that flipping shirt on <laughs> and stop ironing it. So I'm putting my shirt on. Get in the car. It's before the days of sat-navs, before the days of like, mobile phones. So you know where I'm going here. Unfortunately for us, it was before the days of road atlases as well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I said, no, it's not a problem. It's in East Grinstead, which is only about 40 miles away. So there are road signs, and uh, we'll, we'll get there in no time at all. So we did. We got to East Grinstead because of the road signs, but the church wasn't actually in East Grinstead. It was near East Grinstead in a village called uh, Felbridge. The church was called St. John's. And so me and my brother, and me and my full wedding regalia, we come to this crossroads. I'd been to my wife's, my, my fiancé's parents' house a few times. So I, I knew roughly where things were, but I didn't drive in those days, so I'd not done it on the road. I'd done it on the train. And um, <laughs> so we got to this crossroads. It's a T-junction, actually. And um, that, was, that was where my knowledge of the area came to an end, because I didn't know if we should turn left or right. But I knew we were very, very near the church. So I, to my enduring shame, I had to get out of the car and ask some people if they knew where St. John's Felbridge was. <laughs> because I was getting married. <laughs> and um, they, yeah, like that, you know, that's the reaction I got. <laughs> but um, they told, it was left, basically. We were virtually there, right? So this has a very happy ending. I wasn't late. I wasn't that late anyway. I certainly wasn't later than Rachel. But, um, but, um, but then the bride is allowed to be late, right? Not, not, the, uh, not the bridegroom. But so we got back in the car and we were there. But the point is... But my preparations had just gone out of the window. I was so sort of focused on the event. I'm getting married today. It's this huge day. But all the details somehow just slipped by, and I hadn't really given them the time or thought. Jesus here, the most remarkable man, the more you delve into him and his life and the way he acted and the way he was, he's just remarkable. This is a journey that's horrendous. He knows he's going to die. This is, you know, it doesn't get any worse than that. You're, I suppose for prisoners on death row, they know they're going to die, but most of us never have that experience. Jesus knew he was going to die. That's why he was going to Jerusalem. And yet, in all that pressure, he remains calm, he remains collected, he can direct his disciples, go to this village, you'll find a donkey, bring it to me. There's just this whole control about him. Everything is happening in a very measured fashion with him. There's no rush, there's no panic as I say, despite the fact that he is going to this horrendous, horrendous, awful death. Now, it's worth saying, Jesus knows that he's going to rise from the dead as well. And the Bible is very clear that he goes to his death for the joy set before him. So he is doing this voluntarily. He knows he's going to, be ri- he's going to rise from the dead and he'll have paid the price for the sins of the people that follow him. And so for that, he chooses to do it. But nevertheless, on a human level, it's it's the most horrendous thing that he's going to be doing. And in the midst of all that, he's still got time for other people and to prepare to make everything right. And the most amazing thing, really, is that they'd been been heading to Jerusalem for several days now. If you you track back in, in Luke's Gospel, before the passage we read, you can tell from the towns he visits, and by looking at the map, you can see the journey they've gone on over the last few weeks. There's about 40 or 50 miles that he and his disciples have traveled. And they've been walking. Jesus doesn't use any other transport in the New Testament other than walking, except on this occasion. And two miles before Jerusalem, they come to this place called the Mount of Olives, and you, you come up the Mount of Olives, and then over the top of it, you're coming down, and you can see Jerusalem, and, and you come to the main gate in. At that point, he then says, 
go and get me, go and get me this donkey. So why have they walked for 40 or 50 miles? And now two miles before Jerusalem, suddenly he decides to, to get this donkey. Well, part of it, as we said earlier, was because he's demonstrating the humility of the Messiah. But the other side of that same prophecy that we looked at earlier does actually say, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. So the first part of it is about being a king, about being righteous and about having salvation. So even in the midst of this incredible pressure, Jesus has the presence of mind to get this donkey so that he can demonstrate to people not only the humility of arriving on a, a beast of burden, but also the fact that he is coming as a king with salvation. And that is the key for us. It, Jesus has salvation for us. He really has nothing to prove being God Almighty in human form. Even the crowds who are shouting and waving at him don't seem to have any effect on him. He certainly doesn't let it go to his head. And in fact, throughout the previous three years of his public life, Jesus has always seemed in very calm control. And today is certainly no different. When previously talking about his death, Jesus had, had said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus is very aware of the authority that he has, as well as the humility that he displays. And another area where you see his authority coming through is the amazing way he prays. And in this last week before his crucifixion, John, one of his disciples, records for us some of the times that Jesus prays, which is a fantastic kind of behind-the-scenes look into what Jesus was doing in, in private, if you like, that then caused the things to happen in public. And you can read his prayers. He's, one example, he's praying for his disciples, but also he's praying for people who will obey his message through his disciples' preaching, which actually extends right down to today, to those of us who, who take Jesus as the Son of God, who put their trust in him, Jesus is praying for us. And Jesus says, Lord God, I ask not only for my own disciples, but I ask for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us and that the world may believe that you have sent me. And those are massive things to be praying for. Lord, I want to pray that all Christians can be one. I want to pray that the whole world will know that you've sent me. And I wonder how that applies to us. You know, Jesus says that we are to pray with authority as well. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And he goes on to give a very memorable illustration of how God loves to bless us as we pray. He says, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? <laughs> it's kind of weird. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And just as we were saying earlier, once we grasp the fact that God has given us himself in Jesus, of course he's not going to withhold anything else from us. And the more we get ourselves in line with God's purposes, with our own destiny in God, the easier it is to be praying into God's will. And when we get ourselves aligned with God's will and pray in line with that, we just find that things start happening. It's, it's amazing. So we've been focusing today on, on this first stage of Jesus' journey into Jerusalem. We've, we've called it a journey of humility, a journey of destiny, and a journey of authority. And for us, our journey to the cross also requires humility and is also a question of destiny. And as I said, this is not about trying to copy Jesus in our own strength. 
Of course, it's great to have good leaders and role models to look up to, and role models don't come any better than Jesus. But history has shown time and time again that simply trying to emulate a great teacher is not enough to prevent humans from falling back into confusion and disharmony. You might know the name Alexander Solyanitsyn, you might not, but he died in 2008. Alexander Solyanitsyn was a Russian dissident that lived through the Soviet era, and because of his anti-Soviet writings, he was sent to a labor camp in Siberia for eight years, and he became a Christian through his terrible experiences in these labor camps. He realized that once everything had been stripped away from his life, all he had left was God. And later in life, he said this amazing thing about his experiences in these labor camps. He said, he said, it's amazing, he said this, Bless you, prison, bless you for being in my life, for there, lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity, as we are made to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. For there, lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity, as we are led to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. And his greatest insight, actually, was that the problem with the world is not the economy or the political system, but us. And he said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states or political parties, but right through every human heart. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The line separating good and evil passes not through states or political parties, but right through every human heart. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? He recognized that we can only be changed at a fundamental level by an external agent, God. And God promises to change us as we allow him to. Over time, God's Holy Spirit changes our character to be more like Jesus. In the New Testament, in Romans, we're told, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And, and that construction there, be transformed, that's not exhorting us to transform ourselves. That's recognizing entirely that the Holy Spirit transforms us as we allow him to. We cannot reproduce the character of Jesus in our own strength. All our New Year's resolutions, all our willpower, all our best intentions are just not enough. Only the Holy Spirit has the power to make the changes that God wants to make in our lives. And like everything else in our relationship with God, the responsibility lies with him. And he will do it as we allow him to. The death and resurrection of Jesus was planned by God for us so that we could be brought back into relationship with him. And this initial phase of Jesus' journey is a crucial part of God's plan for the entire world. We can be sure of our destiny and we can have that certainty right now. If this is something you're looking into, then please do speak to me afterwards. I'd love to talk further with you. We're not copying Jesus in our own strength but we're being made more like him through his strength. Let's be secure in our destiny. Let's pursue humility, and let's make full use of the authority that Jesus has given us to do that. Could I ask the band to come back up, and I'll just pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you chose to make this first phase of your final journey for us. Lord Jesus, we love you. We think you're amazing. The more we know about you, Lord God, the more amazing we see you are. Thank you that you're here with us now, Lord God, through your Holy Spirit. Amen.